Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Right, wherever you are, however you're listening, hey, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. We're live on 89.3 FM WNUR Evanston, Chicago. Now, you want to have your voice heard, right? 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? Call us, 847-866-9687. We're also streaming live on wnur.org slash pop-up. All right, tonight we lead off with our hometown team segment. Hey, Market Opera Company's fall production is Marin Marais' 1696 opera, Ariane et Bacchus. Haymarket's artistic director, Craig Trumpeter, joins soprano Kimberly McCord live in studio to reveal why their company is the first one to perform this opera in the last 321 years. Then in Chalk Talk, we take a closer look at the recent flourishing of Baroque music performance, including performances by Third Coast Baroque and the works of Monteverdi at the Harris Theater, plus... Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback and reviews the recent production of Gluck's Orphée et Redis at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. We got a fantastic show for you tonight. Would you agree, Oliver? I'm so excited. I have like amazing people here in the studio with me, and you're in a different studio, so I can't touch you. You can't even smell you're me, so dude. Far. I know. It's great. Uh, Tobias Wright not in uh, the studio tonight. He'd be thrilled that his Chiefs won yet again. And can you believe our Chicago Bears also won in overtime? Oliver, Did they you... kneel yesterday? I wasn't paying attention. They they uh, they were not kneeling. They were locking mm. their arms. Oh, that's so sweet. It's it's a movement, dude. I'm, yeah. I'm going to save my hot take on that for the end of the show. Okay. Did you watch any other sports this weekend, um, Oliver? No, but I took my mom to see Battle of the Sexes, the movie about Billie Jean King's battle with or match with uh, Bobby Rigg, the I forget when it was, like in the 70s or something. Right. Like, and um, I thought it'd be a great movie to take my mom to because, you know, like women, yay. But and I knew that Billie Jean King was a lesbian, but there is like sort of an extended makeout scene with Emma Stone and the other lesbian in the cast. And that was too much for your mom. It wasn't too much. For, it wasn't too much for either of us. But I never want to see a movie with my mom where like two women are making out. And I have no problem <laughs> with women making out at all. Please make out all the time. But uh, it's just not something that you want to sit next to your mom with and watch, you know? Well... If it was two guys, I'd be just as uncomfortable. No. If it was a heterosexual couple, I would walk out. love it hey let's talk some opera
How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. Well, you better get ready for a brand Ah, man. Go Cubs, go. Hometown team. It's our first segment tonight talking about opera local here in Chicago. Oliver, talk us through our guests. I guess you're not playing the clip, but that's fine because as it turns out, um, the clip that I gave you to be our intro into the segment uh, doesn't apply to the opera we're going to talk about today. Phew, um, error in my favor. <laughs> I did. So uh, in studio with us today, we have soprano Kimberly McCord and the uh, artistic director, executive director, general director, everything director of uh, Haymarket Opera, Craig Trumpeter, who also plays Viola da Gamba and conducts from the Gamba, which is a really weird thing to see sometimes. Uh, and we also have a surprise guest, uh, Sally Jackson. She's probably not going to talk because she's British and she's very polite, <laughs> who is a bassoon player uh, who is in town, I imagine, to play continuo or play mm-hmm. in, in the opera. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you. A pleasure. So hopefully you'll be able to uh, recognize uh, who is Kimberly by her beautiful female voice and Craig by his, you know, manly voice. <laughs> yes. And if you hear a British accent, that's going to be Sally. <laughs> They're kind of sharing a mic. Anyway, I'm excited to have you guys here because we're going to talk about Ariane Bacchus. But I just want to hear about how you got to this place. I mean, you know me. You audience knows me. I'm crazy about early music. I'm crazy about historical performance. I go to Banff. I got excited anytime there was a harpsichord being played in Chicago. And now we have this full-fledged broke opera company here that has done, I don't know how many productions at this point. And you do French Baroque, which is unheard of in the U.S., except for like in Boston. And uh, yeah, I just feel like uh, you guys are the leaders of the early music movement here in Chicago. Thanks. Yeah, it's um, this is our seventh season and uh, it's been a great time. I think this is our 12th production, full production. And you have a couple of oratorios stuck in there as well. Yeah, so, yeah. we've done, <clears throat> this was our second season of Lenten oratorios hmm. this past year. And we did our first, the first oratorio we did in 2016, we took to Malta uh, oh. to do at the, at the Valletta International Baroque Festival, which Sally kind of engineered. Nice. So we did that uh, in January. And uh, yeah. 12 operas. Who paid for you guys to all go over there? They, the festival. Nice. Yeah. Man. So. You didn't need a towel boy? You could have asked me. <laughs> <laughs> a Baroque towel always boy. always need a Baroque towel um, Oliver yeah. always begging for a job. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the first production for Haymarket was back in 2011. And it yeah. was a Handel cantata type of thing. Yeah, yeah serenata. Serenata, um, okay. Called Aci Galatea Polifemo. It's the earlier version of Aces and Galatea. The Italian version, yeah, with and really hard arias. Yeah, yeah and a totally different piece, actually, yeah. and it's really great. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard some. Uh, actually, what got me thinking about it, I knew the piece, and mm-hmm. I, I heard Benjamin Leclerc. Uh, I did a concert with him. I think mm-hmm. Messiah, probably. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy could probably sing this role because the role of Polyfemo is crazy. It has mm-hmm. a low B, I think, or E. And flat. a broke pitch is like an E. Yeah. yeah. And then a high A flat. Nice. Yeah. yeah. In within a measure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so and I heard him sing. I thought I think he can actually do it. And uh-huh. then I got the idea started to come to me for actually for the opera company from that. Really, because so, of Ben Leclerc's yeah. crazy tessitura. Yeah. You hear I that, want... Ben Leclerc? <laughs> it's all because of you. Yeah, I just I wanted to do that piece. It's one of my favorite pieces, and hmm. I thought, you know what? 
life is short. I'm just going to make this happen. And I started talking to people and then I was like, maybe we can do more. And, you know, it took maybe a year to sort of plan the the company. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know what exactly would end up happening. I didn't see it sort of taking over my life the way it has. <laughs> um, and it's wonderful. But um, yeah, so it's it's been a, every day is an adventure. It's really fun. And well, I always like to like, make the takeaway lessons very explicit. And this may be obvious for like everybody who's in the arts, but sometimes you love something so much and nobody else is doing it and you just have to do it yourself. And maybe you get like trampled on and maybe you like lose all your money, but maybe it, you actually make something and you build something and you build it and they come, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, when I was a kid, I I used to put on plays in my basement. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and you played all the female parts? Yeah. You know, how did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is another one of Craig's many strengths is casting. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting for me to hear this story that that's kind of what mm. what inspired the very oh. first show because you're very careful about your casting and you put together oh, amazing, you. amazing um, voices for the yeah. different roles. So that's really Yeah, you like singers, don't you? I love singers. So yeah. tell us about that a little bit. I mean, you play, you started playing cello. Yes. And then you picked up the gamba and you studied with Mary Springfield? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mary Springfield. So I started off life as a pianist, actually. Oh, and wow. then, I, then I took up the cello when I was 11, I think, and uh, went to school at the Cleveland Institute as a double major in mm-hmm. piano and cello performance for about two weeks and realized that that's impossible, basically. So at least for me, physically, I couldn't manage that. Um, so my cello teacher was incredible so i i went that route and uh my very first lesson actually he asked me um what recordings of bach i was listening to and i said Mm. well i'm listening to this guy you've probably never heard of him his name is honor bilsma and he's like you know the preeminent baroque cellist of of the 1980s through Mm -hmm. 2000 or so never heard of him amazing uh i'm sorry no no it's you know um, yeah. Anyway, he said, well, yeah, that's the person you should be listening to. Oh, nice. And then he handed me a Xerox copy of the Anna Madalena, um Notebook, yeah. Uh, no, the um, manuscript oh, of, my gosh. The, of the cello suites. So he said, work from this. I was like, whoa, this is, this is my scene here. Mm-hmm. So um, I, he, all, all of his students played very differently, but I sort of got into the Baroque ideas and sound in a way that I just kept following it. And uh, a few years later, a friend of mine, who just was appointed um, viola da gamba and cello teacher at IU. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was practicing her viola da gamba, and I was like, what is that thing? And she said, oh, try it out. And, and then she took me to her rehearsal that night, and I walked out with a gamba. And, <laughs> um, and then ever since then, I just, I mean, I just fell in love with the instrument. Okay, so you're a kleptomaniac. <laughs> Actually, you know, we were just talking about this uh, earlier. My parents finally saw the movie Tous les Matins du Monde, uh, Oh, like good yesterday. sag. And they they um, loved it, and they were like, "Oh, we totally get why you love the gamba now." Okay, I'm so glad you brought and, that up. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up because <laughs> the composer for this opera that you're putting on right now, the uh, Ariadne and Bacchus uh, in French, Bacchus uh, Ariadne et Bacchus. All right, um, is Marin Marais. And for those of you who ever saw the movie All the Mornings of the World with Gerard Depardieu and yeah. like his hot son and Guillaume, yes, yeah. Uh, that was all Murray music. Mm. And who knew that Murray also wrote an opera you know, mm. besides you, you know? <laughs> so, um, or wrote operas, probably more than, yeah. He wrote four. Yeah. Yeah. So what drew you to the score? To this score? Well, 
this is not a score that's like readily available. Yeah. In fact, we are working from a brand new edition. Oh, uh, nice. And I heard about this edition uh, about four years ago, maybe. A friend of mine um, knew uh, the editor who's who's been working on it for seven years. Her name is Silvana Scarinci. She's Brazilian. And um, said, oh, my friend Silvana's working on a Marais opera. And I was like, wow, really? Uh, I don't know that one. I mean, no one knows any of them, really. Yeah. Uh, but I said, I'd love to be in touch with her. And, and I wrote to her, um, and we started this dialogue. And... I asked her if I could see the piece and I, I looked at the score and I said, is there any chance we could make the premiere happen in Chicago? And she said, yes. So, and she made the parts or you made the parts. Or? She, uh, the orchestral parts were made by somebody else actually, but okay. she's been uh, editing the, the score for an edition that will come out next year sometime. So it's wow. a scholarly edition. Maybe you guys can record this. Hmm. <laughs> I like that idea. Well, that, that, I'm so glad we're talking about this opera finally because um, the marketing campaign mm -hmm. for this show has been brilliant. Oh, and for those people who uh, have the Facebook, uh, you should <laughs> you should like the Haymarket Opera Company page. You should love it, actually. Well, you can only you can love it. I think I you can know. like a page, but you can't love a page. Okay. You can love a post, okay. and you can love the administrator personally. <laughs> Do um, not discuss Facebook with Oliver. Whatever you. Oh, okay, sorry. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, but the marketing campaign features Kimberly McCord mm. in full Baroque regalia, uh, kind of uh, dropped into you know 2017 Chicago as like a Baroque person and being like impressed by cash stations and Dibby bikes mm -hmm. and the bean. <laughs> it's so amazing. Who came up with this idea? Dave Moss, our okay. amazing uh, executive director. Okay, this. That marketing campaign is genius. Can we talk about that a little bit, Kimberly? Do you want to tell us how what that was like and the interactions you had with like strangers on the street? <laughs> well, it was the it was the first day of Lollapalooza, oh so a lot God. of people on the street, and we did it actually really fast because the, there was a rainstorm coming, and we just had to get the footage and get out. Mm -hmm. The most the thing that I remember the most is how I got in and out of the car with that headdress on. <laughs> so I literally had to. It, it was it was a very strange uh, position I had to get into <laughs> to get yes. in and out of that car without taking their headdress off, but people were were so kind and were were so uh, you know pleasantly uh, enchanted by by such a thing, um, and so that that was really fun and and so yeah it was a brilliant idea and and we 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 had a great time shooting that footage and of course the editing of it made it even better. So. And the costume was by Miriam. Miriam's costume that was largely my costume when I when I sang the part of Juno in Callisto mm -hmm. um and so uh, that it was just the perfect uh, kind of uh, of thing to wear and it, and it looked great on the street and 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 people really enjoyed it <laughs> so we will uh link to this commercial um on our website so you can all watch it but I know you're gonna go to Facebook and like it at any rate um so what role are you singing in this opera Kimberly in this opera, I'm I'm the singing the role of Dirce. Okay. So I'm I'm a. It's kind of a strange part because I I start the opera already being having been rejected by my fiance really mm. who's who's got the hots for Man. Ariane like yeah. who doesn't, yeah. um, and and I come back in in the third act as a a kind of like a an automaton almost under the control of Juno and so I sing that whole act under as if Juno has. Uh, embodied me. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm her pod. <laughs> so, and then in the, I come back in the fifth act saying, I don't know what happened to me, and it's just better not to ask questions. But I'm really sad that 
that my lover doesn't want me in. Well, there's many different ways to like approach this story. Like you could do like the labyrinth stuff or you could do like the being abandoned on Noxos stuff. You could do like the sister fighting stuff. Like, so where does Marais librettist come on down on this story? So. Well, it starts, uh, the libretto is by Saint-Jean and we don't know anything about him. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> uh, it starts after Theseus has left okay. and he's walked, you know, run off with, with Ariana's people. sister, yeah. yes. Okay, so just to be clear, everybody, Ariana is the one who rescued Thesis by telling him to use a string to uh-huh. get out of the labyrinth exactly. so that he would be able to escape from the Minotaur, Minotaur. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the Minotaur is the result of like some bestiality type yeah, of thing. Yeah, there's lots of fun stuff like that. Yeah. But um, so Theseus takes Ariana to the island of Naxos and then ditches her there and mm-hmm. goes off with her sister, Fedra. Right. So now this is Ariana with Bacchus who comes to rescue her. Yeah, he just kind of shows up, and there she okay. is, and he falls in love with her, even though he says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in love. I'm only interested in glory. And mm-hmm. then she walks on. She has like a four-measure um, ritornel and comes on, and he falls in love with her in those four measures. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> it only takes me really a measure. <laughs> you need four. That's you why know we the love you, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there are all these real fun um, sort of side plots. There's the Yosei and Adrast uh, relationship. Adrast is this prince who is betrothed to Yosei, but he is in love with Ariane. And um, Juno comes in and says, you The know, goddess of marriage and also the scorned wife of Jupiter. Exactly. And um, there, the townspeople, the courtiers gather to celebrate the arrival of Bacchus. And she comes on and says, No, you must not celebrate his him because he is the bastard son of Semele and, and uh, Jupiter. So um, she, Juno and Adrast team up to ruin the relationship between Ariane and Bacchus. And we won't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a dream sequence, no, and it's, fa- it's just lots of fantastical, uh, dramatic uh, devices are used to, to give us lots of, of, of different colors and, and mm. things to play with, and also to give us a lot of excuses for some great dancing. Oh so oh one of the things I think is most exciting about this show is that you have all of this Baroque dance and incorporated into the show yeah. um, so beautifully, yeah. and it's, it's that's one of the most exciting things about about this yeah. this show for okay, me. Okay, no pressure, but like in 90 seconds, what is something that you're really excited for the audience to see in this show, to experience, be it the costumes mm-hmm. or the dance or some other component we didn't talk about that oh, really gosh. makes this opera special? Well, all of those. All, I yeah. mean, the dancing is spectacular, and Sarah Edgar, our stage director, has this incredible way of managing the stage and then incorporating the dance. I mean, I think everybody's moving beautifully, like mm-hmm. all the chorus singers and um the soloists, they just have gorgeous presentation and like every gesture is meaningful. And then the dancers come on and just like amp it up with, you know, incredible footwork and, you know, patterns. And uh, the costumes are, as usual, just breathtaking. I mean, we, we saw, I think, what, 60% of them on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, no wigs, no, I think there were missing pieces and headdresses mm-hmm. and things. But I was just, you know, smiling ear to ear. I just couldn't get over how beautiful it was. And the band. We have this expanded have a, yeah. band with these amazing colors that we mm. haven't had yet. It's We have a new, there's a new instrument in town, uh, the bass violin. Uh, mm. Jeremy which, Ward playing? No, uh, mm. Russell Wagner is oh, playing. Okay. So it's a brand new bass violin uh, made for this production. It was born like last week. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Poor mother. And, yeah, and the, the orchestra sounds great. I think we, we just started today with the full orchestra. And 
We do have a clip, uh, Oliver. You want to? No, we don't have a clip. We don't have a clip. No, uh, All right. just disregard the clip. You're going to have to come uh, to the show. We're going to go to the really second clip. There you go. Not the first clip. You're going to have to get rid of. I know, but the second clip's ready to go. Yeah, but it's uh, not this opera. Uh huh. Um, so, um, so that's September 30th, Saturday, mm-hmm. uh, October 1st, Sunday, and then Tuesday, October 3rd, Correct. at the Studebaker Theater, which is in downtown Chicago on the ground floor of the Fine Arts Building. Yeah. Uh, you can get your tickets at haymarketopera.org. Yes. Uh, oh, and the set is amazing, too. I just was in the theater uh, a couple hours ago, and it's really cool. So, is there a deus ex machina? Uh, of sorts. Okay. We don't have anything flying in, but there's okay. some... There's I some... only want to go to shows that have one of those, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, George? Yes, sir. Kimberly and Craig, you guys going to stick around for the next segment and talk a little bit more Baroque sure. Opera, or are you guys going to take off and start it. drinking? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Stick around. we got lots more coming your way right after this. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's Opera Box Score. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Give us a call. Let us know what your intersection with Baroque Opera is. I'm hanging out with Oliver Camacho. Hi. And our illustrious guests, Craig Trumpeter from the Haymarket Opera Company and soprano Kimberly McCord. And Baroque bassoonist Sally Jackson, who is not shy at all. So we might, might try to get her to talk in this segment. My fault. Um, so we're going to take this uh, these next 20 minutes to talk about the scene in Chicago in general. And we have to start with something that we ended with last week, which is the John Elliott Gardner Monteverdi 450 project, which is coming in October. Um, some would say that John Elliott Gardner is one of the pioneers during the commercial, we were talking about um, Gustav Leonhardt and Nicholas Harnoncourt as maybe being predating John Elliott Gardner. But at any rate, John Elliott Gardner is one of the originals. And, you know, whatever, 40 years after he had made his famous recording of 30 years of uh, Monteverdi Vespers, he's back doing Monteverdi again with these three operas. Uh, one of these operas actually features Reginald Mobley, Reggie Mobley. Uh, you know Reggie? Yeah, is he actually singing? He's singing Arnalta in Popea. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a, a substitute for one of the singers that didn't want to come to the U.S. because of Trump or something. I don't know. Ah. I don't know if that's the case, but that's my own story. So, <laughs> um, but you know, we talked about Reggie Mobley last week uh, in relations to the um, Oregon Bach Festival. And if you heard that story with Matthew Halls, okay, good. We won't talk about it. Uh, so there's that, which is like making October a really exciting month in Chicago for early music. You guys are kicking it off with um, the Marais Opera. Then we have Third Coast Baroque, which is something you have 
an affiliation with. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what the first concert is this year in yeah, the season? I'm not doing it, but I think oh. <laughs> I believe it's Bach. I should I should have looked. No, uh, I believe it's Bach. Yeah. No, I don't know. Okay. Let's go with Bach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard of him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they have a really exciting season because they're bringing Vivica Janot in in I think in the spring, which is like a real. That's amazing for mm-hmm. a group that's relatively new to be able to get her to come to Chicago. You know, maybe she likes Chicago. I don't know. Uh, she just did that concert at CSO last spring with uh, Fabio Biondi, the Vivaldi arias and stuff like that. Uh, and I've never seen her sing before. Uh, I've heard her sing a lot and I've seen videos of her. But like watching her in person is something else. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> She's really got interesting tics, which I love. Uh, and then Bella Voce and Calipigian Players is doing the Monteverdi Vespers uh, near the end of October, which is going to be amazing because Bella Voce is a great group. That yeah, you're in that, aren't you? You're not in that. <laughs> Maybe. And then uh, there's even like a Heinrich Schutz Schwanigazang happening uh, like next week. Really? So October is insane. I'm sure there are other things I'm not even thinking about. But um, Kimberly, as a singer, how do you feel? about all of this music now that you're, you know, especially trained to do starting to happen here in Chicago, in your hometown. I, I think it's great. I mean, when I, I lived in Europe for eight years after I finished my undergrad mm-hmm. and I was doing early music over there. And when I came to Chicago, I was, I, I, I had hoped there would be more. Um, and, and now we're seeing that come, come to, to flourish here. And it's just such a wonderful, um, I, I, it always appealed to me because it was like another universe, another way of expressing what it means to be a human being. And it always spoke to me in a, in a special way. And so I, I love the fact that there are more and more groups um, taking it to this more serious level. I mean, it, it's it's no joke to put on the Monteverdi Vespers and and, and, and some of these projects. Um, it takes real, uh, it takes a, a, a deep deep bench would you say i I, I think we're just scratching the surface on this so i know what it means to me i know how being a singer who tried to sing opera and i could probably sing opera if i like worked really hard at it but it was just so much more natural for me to like sing early music and i could be much more expressive and i could do things with my voice that you really can't do in opera um how is it for you who you're like you're a serious pro we have here in the studio who had like very very specific training in Europe and you worked with Emma Kirkby you said and you mm-hmm. worked with Paul McCreesh like what are some of the things that you took away from from those experiences One of the things about um baroque music is for me is how um how emotional it is and mm-hmm. how how they love emotional contrast um sometimes in one phrase you're 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 angry and you're in love at the same time or whatever you do and you and that and sometimes that's the trick is you have to figure out how can I emotionally at least with the colors of my voice and stuff change on an on a dime like that and um and it it says something about for me it's there's something real about that because we're all a jumble of emotions all happening at the same time um and so there's a there's a there can be an emotional truth in in that juxtaposition and that 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 study and contrast that, that the Baroque period is so great at, and also it's very often it's very declamatory. And I I love Puccini. I, I love you know later composers as well, but in the in the Baroque period there's there's often such an emphasis on the text. So you're very much um, connected the way you're singing with how you speak, and mm-hmm. there's something very. Um, 
very natural about that kind of emotional delivery um, that that really um, speaks to me as a performer and helps keep me grounded in my characters. And Sally, as somebody who plays in a lot of uh, continuo sections, can you talk about what it's like to play continuo with famous maybe orchestras or, or like, you know, great Baroque orchestras and working with singers? And what is that like for you as somebody who plays like an instrument that sort of sings, but also does like these continual lines, these bass lines? Well, that, that was a I, long question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I studied uh, modern bassoon for four years at college and then somebody came in to do a, a, a masterclass on the Baroque bassoon and I was just blown away. I, was, I, I love Baroque music. That's what mm-hmm. I did, but I didn't really do much college. And then uh, I, I just saw this instrument and I just thought it was amazing. And, and I, I started having lessons with him. And uh, and and the wonderful thing about about the bassoon in the Baroque periods really is is it it, it is just a color it's a color it's to color the bass line, and uh, actually working with with somebody like Craig who is a fantastic cellist, um, it's it's uh, it, it's wonderful that the colors that we that we managed to do isn't it and can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> no, like, what is it like to work with singers? And, like, I don't know if you, like, you've worked with other conductors that we might want to hear about, like, maybe famous people or something name like that. Like, yeah, name dropping. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. Please drop names. <laughs> <laughs> or have you have you been in any concerts with, like, really big singers like a Vivica Genau or, like, a Joyce Donato who are also, like, doing a lot of early music these days? Yeah, you know? yeah I've worked with... Uh... Yeah, Joyce Donato. I mean, I've been lucky to work with with a lot of singers. I mean, when in in the good old days, we were doing sort of four, three or four CDs a month because the the whole uh, uh, repertoire needed to be recorded. Really, so we started off with. I mean, I never thought when I started early instruments that I'd be actually going up to uh, Elgar. We've we've mm. we've we've gone right up there now with the with, uh, with in the British scene. Actually, I I think uh, to the extent that we don't do enough of the Baroque Baroque stuff. Now. You're doing too much like well, with, classical with, stuff. Yeah, again. I mean the orchestra I play, I play in the Age of Enlightenment. Age of Enlightenment. That's my main. Yes, uh, that's Harry Bickett's group, right? No, that's English concert. That's, oh, okay. Yeah, um, we the Age of Enlightenment in theory doesn't have a conductor. They invite okay. people to do specific projects who they would like to work with. So, for example, this year we've been working with Bill Christie a lot. Oh, um, and that's uh, a name. We were, yeah, we were, <laughs> were doing, but then we will also work with Marin Allsop, who's, who's nice. from the modern scene. And, Go women. Yeah, she's great. And and uh, Robin Ticciati, you know, we, we've been, we, the nice thing about that orchestra is we do have a huge variety of, of, of conductors we're lucky enough to work with and singers. You know, we've been recording, I was just saying to Craig, we've been doing um, uh, Norma, Bellini's Norma, and, and we did Semirabidi last year, but now we've just been doing Bach Goes to Paris with Bill Christie. So it's amazing, what, you know, just doing Bach Suites and revisiting all that. The, the, variety, the variety is incredible. Um, that we can do now, but it is. Were you in that Norma with Cecilia Bartoli, that bizarre no. one? No. Okay. No. No, that's that's very posh. That's yeah. very posh. <laughs> Craig, um, can you talk about? Um, no, that's me. I'm sorry. Can you talk about what you? Because you're, you and I are about the same generation. What it's been like to be, you know, in Chicago and to see this happen, and you know, really where how far Chicago has come since music that broke used to be the only game in town and like Newbury concert maybe for the Renaissance stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. It's, it's really thrilling. Uh, I mean, there's a lot going on all the time. I think, um, there are quite a few great players here who are more or less, uh, only doing period work 
now, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it has grown quite a lot. And I think this, I think Haymarket is probably <clears throat> the thing that involves the most people now. I think there are a lot of groups that are uh, really great chamber groups that are flourishing as well. But I think we're sort of the mothership at this point, which is kind of interesting yeah <laughs> after six years well you guys are like farming out your orchestra to like chicago opera theater and yeah, university yeah. of chicago yeah. and yeah i mean i think the the sky's the limit i think there's a lot that can happen and we're we grow from season to season it's it's pretty spectacular i have a bass violin yeah. yeah so um yeah like this production is enormous this is the the biggest thing we've ever done by double french opera is decadent yeah <laughs> yeah so um yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really excited about what's going to happen next. Well, speaking of French opera, I just have to drop in here um, that I saw the Gluck Orfei mm. uh, at Lyric. Mm-hmm. I went to opening night, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Joffrey. Um, they now have signed on to be Lyric's like resident dance company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the John Neumeyer. Is that his name, George? Uh, yes, no, that's no, correct. Neumeyer He's and this production is being shared with two other opera houses. I forget which ones. Uh, Hamburg. Yeah. And LA, oh, yeah. He's like LA, the Hamburg choreographer. Since and, before I was born. Yeah. yeah since and Hamburg is like <laughs> one of the most amazing dance companies. How do I say that? I want to say nice things about this show. And John von Ryan's review is like ecstatic. So if you want to hear nice things about the show, go read John von Ryan's Tribune review. It's a great, it's a great review. It's over I mean, the top. it's, it's four out of four. Yeah. Um, enthusiastically recommended. I was sitting in like the f- sixth row or seventh row and I saw everything. Oh, you're sitting in the cheap seats, huh? Okay. I know. I saw like in between butt cheeks. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. That's Wait, how close what? I was. And there's a lot of buns in this. Is the spoiler alert for you all? Buns are prominently featured in this opera. So if you like buns like me. Oliver, you sound surprised that a piece with a lot of dance has a lot of buns in it. It's more buns than normal. Okay. I promise you. It's like the bread aisle at Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Dimitri Korchak uh, is singing this ridiculous haute contra role uh, in this version of Orfei, not the Italian version, the French version. It's ridiculously high. Uh, it's probably wasn't meant to be performed at 440, but it is being performed at 440. And God bless him for being able to sing this music. Uh, he has a bel canto technique, and he's got that really like reedy mask centric sound which is great for like rossini but for like elegant graceful look it's a little bit in your face uh he does achieve a couple of beautiful moments when he sings off the voice like in some accompagnato recitatives and like in the duet with Eurydice. but uh like the aria that everybody knows the kefaro in french is so over the top mm. loud and ballsy mm. um so and I also have to say that Neumeyer added extra scenes into the opera that there was no music for. So his solution was just to do these scenes in silence. Uh, and I feel like there's enough music in this opera. You should be able to like fit in all of your plot within the prescribed music. That feels like it would be really shocking. I mean, I'm going to go see the show in, in mid-October after this I mean, ultimately it was fun. But... I love the idea of like seeing that much dance. I'm crazy about dance. There's this really tall dancer in the Joffrey named Fabrice something, Kamel, Fabrice Kamel, who's like eight feet tall, I'm not even kidding you, mm. and you cannot take your eyes off of him. It's ravishing. Mm. Uh, anyway, um, Orfe is only partially recommended because I love 
the opera and I love I want people to go see it because I want people to support the opera and I love Gluck and I love Buns, but uh, I wasn't moved by it. And that's my biggest complaint. Like this opera should touch you. And uh, I've just felt a little like scratched maybe, you know, you want to talk about the uh, lyric Joffrey relationship now? You want to say, uh, no, it we'll save it. Cause save like, it? I'd like to actually, I'd like to right. uh, end with first thing I'm going to thank Kimberly and Sally and Craig. And then we're going to close out um, this segment by listening to the second half of this clip uh, with Kimberly singing from the Haymarket production of La Callisto from last summer? Was it already? It was spring 2016. Yeah, 2016. Mm-hmm. That was your first show at the Athenaeum <clears throat> Theater, mm-hmm. which I thought was going to be your home, but now the Studebaker's your home. So you've been bumping around a lot. Um, <laughs> is this it? Are you done? Are you now at the Studebaker? One never knows, but uh, we certainly like what we've done okay. so far. We haven't actually given a show there yet, but you know, yeah. the theater's gorgeous. and, and uh, It's the right size. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you've been inside yet? I really have, okay, yeah. 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 So it's I think it's gonna really be amazing. Yeah, yeah it really is location. it is the perfect size for a venue. I mean it, I think uh, you know, the Harris is is big to say the least and, and same said. with that. That's what she said, but the same with the Athenaeum. But I, I mean C O T Chicago Opera Theater has had success at the Studebaker and I think um I think you guys at Haymarket can have a lot of success there too. Thank you. So this is Juno's entrance from La Calissa. This is uh, Angry Wife music. Sure enough. Stick around after this on Opera Box Court. It's going to be the two-minute drill. Thanks again to Craig Trumpeter, Kimberly McCord, and Sally Jackson.
live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847 847- 866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week, delivered in two minutes tops. Timothy O'Leary, the American impresario who made new works and community engagement central to his success at the helm of Opera Theater of St. Louis, will become the next general director of the Washington National Opera. Tenor Jose Carreras is 70 and is retiring from singing. He's now on a long world tour that will take him to Carnegie Hall in New York. The Wortham Theater Center, home to Houston Grand Opera and the Houston Ballet, was so severely damaged by the flooding brought on by Hurricane Harvey that it will remain closed through at least May 15. Heading overseas, Cressida Pollock, chief executive of English National Opera, will leave her position at the end of the current season, four months before her contract expires. And on this day, happy birthday to composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. From 1683, composer Dmitry Sostakovich, born in 1906, and conductor Sir Colin Davis. He was born in 1927. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago... You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. You got it. That's what uh, is happening on Opera Box Score tonight. No Tobias Wright, actually. Mm, we miss you, Tobias. We know that you're on a date right now. So. <laughs> that lie to us. I think it's been a long time for that young man, and that's all I'm going to say. To have a date? I know. Well, prior to like last week when he met that girl. Yeah. They're actually, he met, they met over the summer. So, yeah. They're getting married. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, aren't they I think, I think he's proposing to her tonight. I hope they're not listening to the show. Oh, so. my God. What if they were listening to the show? And I ruined the surprise. Dude. Yeah. That's just so rude. <laughs> <laughs> so if Sir Colin Davis were alive, he would be 90 years old. Uh, he passed away recently. 2013 yeah, or 2014, I'm, I'm, I think. Yeah. Every, all the years run together for me. But um, Colin Davis was like my first love conductor. Uh, his recording of Handel's Messiah with Helen Watts and um, what's her name? Uh, oh my God, soprano. Really important British soprano. I can't remember her name right now. Um, I love that recording so much. I listen to it so, so mm-hmm. much. Heather Harper is the soprano. Yeah. And then his Mozart recordings, uh, his Figaro with Jesse Norman, 
his uh, cozy with Montserrat Caballé and uh, Janet Baker, uh, his Clemenza de Tito with Janet Baker, those recordings I grew up listening to. Um, so I, I'm happy birthday up there, Colin Davis. But other stories, you, you take the next one. Well, first I was going to say happy birthday to Dmitry Shostakovich. I think that is probably the first modern composer I ever started listening to. My dad is a huge Shostakovich fan, and I remember listening to like Shostakovich 5 when I was a kid. He, My dad hmm. was just really into Shostakovich. Did you play that game in the car like where you turn on the radio station? We and did. We would yeah. listen to WUOM back in Ann Arbor, and we would okay. play Guess the Composer, and now I play it with my son. Uh, I play it with everybody's in my car. Love it. <laughs> Wait, you play it with all the little boys in your car? <laughs> that didn't sound right. Hey, Timothy O'Leary taking over at Washington National Opera. This choice makes such sense. It's an amazing, brilliant choice. It couldn't have happened to a better person. Absolutely lovely guy. And such a smart move for Washington National Opera. At the opening press conference this is according to the New York Times. When he announced the name of the company, he emphasized national, Washington National Opera, and said what he called bringing in a, quote, golden age of new American works. This is what he did in St. Louis. This is what he's going to do in, in Washington. This company, I don't think, has ever really had an identity, partly because it's subsumed by the Kennedy Center. By the way, even the website for Washington National Opera, which is part of the Kennedy Center website, Kind of clunky. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they know that. But Timothy O'Leary is going to really help this company take it to the next level and become the true American powerhouse that I think it needs to be because I don't know if right now it's necessarily on the same level with, obviously not the Met. The Met is in its own level, but with a San Francisco and L.A., a Chicago. Philadelphia even, yeah. Even Philadelphia, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm very happy about this. Uh, I had the chance to meet uh, Timothy O'Leary a couple of years ago when he was judging the Met Regional Competition mm -hmm. in Chicago, yeah. and we had lunch. And uh, he just seems like, I mean, the, my only complaint about him is that he's a white guy. And we have so many white guys in top jobs in these uh, administrative positions in these opera companies. But if it was going to happen to a white guy, I'm happy it happened to this white guy. He's my brother from another mother. Well, he is. And I mean, I think his interests are extremely diverse. You know, you look at the last new work that he staged in St. Louis. Uh, it was this piece called An American Soldier mm -hmm. about Private Danny Chen, a young Chinese-American from New York City who killed himself in Afghanistan after he was hazed and racially taunted. And to O'Leary's credit, a lot of what he did, this is around the production of Death of Klinghoffer, John Adams, who's done it back in 2011. Normally, that piece brings a lot of vocal protests, animosity. It's what happened at the Met. O'Leary, he didn't sidestep it. He confronted it by organizing a lot of interfaith dialogue. And I think he really took it in his stride. So, and in 2013, he also did a gay black opera, uh, Champion, the story about the um, basketball, basketball boxer, the gay boxer, which was like, I mean... I still want to see that show, you know, yeah. Terrence Blanchard. I probably had some kind of jazzy idiom, stuff like that. But like we don't hear a lot about, uh, you know, the queer community and the, within the black community yeah. and to do an opera. I mean, to spend whatever one sixth or one fifth of your budget on a show that that's that risky, you know. Gutsy. Yeah. Very gutsy. Jose Carreras apparently is being remembered now. Not that he's dead, but he is retiring. He's remembered as like the other guy of the three tenors. <laughs> right. Domingo. 
Yeah. Pavarotti. And the other guy, yeah. That's, I, that's I think that's, from, a cheap, that's a cheap that's shot. That's from Seinfeld, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's from Seinfeld. Okay, it's a Seinfeld joke. I think it's also a cheap shot. I mean, I think... I think Carreras. I remember Carreras being on uh, Sesame Street, making a little appearance on Sesame Street. Oh, that was the height of his career. Yeah, that's like really, you really can't. Once you make it to Sesame Street, you've made it big time. You have. Everybody wants to be on Sesame Street. I wonder if Marilyn Manson's ever been on Sesame Street. Hmm. I think Lena Dunham's been on Sesame Street. She was naked, probably. Those are strange bedfellows. Yeah. Uh, so he's retiring, doing. Uh, he's retiring and out in style. Doing he's doing like a, a share world, thing, like a, a farewell tour. tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna have his own theater in Vegas, I think. Just for those youngsters who are listening, uh, he was one of the three tenors, but he also, he also, I know, like some people might not know what that is. <laughs> I'm choking on my beer over here. But uh, he also had leukemia, it's and true. he survived it. And it, I mean, he sang really hard, at which might have to do why his voice showed a lot of wear you know, um, when he should have been singing great, uh, like in his forties and his fifties, but then he had leukemia and, uh, yeah, his voice definitely changed. But, uh, of the three tenors, uh, I love, don't get me wrong. I love Pavarotti. I love this guy's technique. I love his tone, but the tenor that moved me the most yeah. was Carreras. And we're going to close out, not at this very moment. We are going to close out this segment listening to a live recording of um, Carreras in 1980 uh, singing the finale to Lichita de L'Amour. Uh, that's like about a three-minute segment. So we've got a little a couple we'll, more. We'll time it out. Yeah, exactly. We should cut back to the Joffrey Ballet and their relationship uh, yes. now with Lyric Opera of Chicago. We touched on it earlier yeah. on in the show. This was announced right before... Like the day before... Orfei yeah, opened. That the Joffrey is going to become the resident ballet company at the Lyric Opera House. This is starting in fall 2020, so it's a number of years away. They're leaving the Auditorium Theater, going to Lyric. Oliver, does that move make sense? Oh, I didn't. I guess I didn't read the press release. I thought it meant that they were also going to be working on collaborations with Lyric Opera. I mean, I think that's the subtext okay. of the release, probably. I think at this point, all we know officially is that they're just going to be doing their season at the That's, Lyric. Well, that house. makes sense for two reasons, because the Lyric needs to, I mean, it's an expensive building, an expensive part of the city, and they need to fill it up. Uh, they need to use it as much as possible. So that part is great. I think the Auditorium Theater, which is the historic theater in the heart of downtown Chicago, is just too big. Uh, it, I mean, there used to be a time, yeah. a day and age, when, you know, you would put a circus in there, or you would put, like, a, what's her name, like a, a singer like... Um, sure. Uh, who's this Rosa, not Rosa Pensa, this color to soprano from the 50s. You know, you know what I'm talking about, everybody. And she would fill up the house, you know, yeah. just one singer. But now the arts are struggling for audiences and it feels really weird when you don't have a lot of people like in all yeah. the seats. So the lyric is a little, I think it's a little bit smaller than the auditorium, if I'm not mistaken. It is. Yes, I would say it's like two thirds the size of the auditorium, okay. maybe. Yeah. Which is still like 3,600 seats. It's you know, uh, so that that's a good plan. Um, I like the idea of Lyric having a resident dance company. I think we had a story maybe a year ago or two years ago where uh, the Met was losing its dance company, mm-hmm. or, or one of the major opera companies was like shedding its resident dance troupe. Like yeah. they they all got like forget, the pink I slip. Which yeah, one that was. yeah. I probably should know that. Um, but this to me shows growth like if the lyric is willing to like okay we're going to take you on as well i mean they already have a gigantic artistic roster and to have to now 
you know, budget for dance because because Joffrey will do its own productions for sure. They will be separate. Exactly. But they're going to have to now think about their season and how it relates to dance and which performances will include dance. You know? And the subtext again is that people who go to the Joffrey will then go to Lyric and vice versa, right? So that those audiences, if there's some overlap, there's not a lot of overlap, but they're trying to get the overlap to be greater. Yeah, I mean, just let's be really explicit about it. There's old money, you know, and people who are old money tend to support the classic arts. Yeah. That's a, I'm so sorry to say it that way, so crassly and so explicitly, but that's the truth. And so I think that the the our generation, or I guess my generation because I'm older than you, yeah. of old money families, they have not been supporting the arts that much. Right. And so they need to kind of like concentrate those audiences in one space. You know? I don't know. My, my wife has taken me and the kids to go see the Joffrey Nutcracker. We're not, we're not old money. Yeah. I'm talking about old money. You're okay. like patrons. You're actual like arts lovers. I see. I'm talking about the people who like feel like it's their duty to support the arts because their family has for generations and generations. You know? Super quick, Cressida Pollock leaving English National Opera. She was the chief executive. She's leaving four months before her contract expires. There was a lot of back and forth about her taking this job because she came from an investment firm. Uh, the Arts Council England cut a lot of the funding to English National Opera after appointment. John Barry, the artistic director, stepped down after she took the appointment. There was some problems with the chorus union. I mean, look, she's 35. It feels like she was a little in over her head. Could you realistically expect a 35-year-old who hasn't been living? She admitted she wasn't, quote, an opera buff. Could you realistically expect someone with that sort of background to be running one of not just London's, not just England's or Britain's or the UK's, but one of Europe's big opera houses? That seems like a tall order to me. I think that... Well, we, we don't. We, this story just came out, and there's yet to be like comprehensive understanding of what the situation is. But I feel like she was brought on as sort of like a disruptor, you know, like oh, she's young, she's a woman, she, mm. you know, she comes from a different field. She'll bring in new blood, whatever. You think she was like a fall guy? Like she was brought in to fall on her own sword? No, but I just think that they. Operation? I I think that when we bring on people that are not related to the opera that didn't come up through the ranks. You have to expect them to not be as ex- obviously as experienced or to love the art that much. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. what's his name? At, at Peter Gelb. Okay. You know, he comes from, he came from Sony. He at least, you know, was in music. Like, he understood the marketing. He understood the product, you know. Maybe he didn't understand, like, how to run an opera house. But, you know, now he's been there long enough. He's starting to get the hang of yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Not sure where you go after uh, English National Opera. Hey, should we listen to a little bit of that Carreras clip before yeah. we uh, wrap the show? Tell us what we're listening to. Once again, the finale of 1980 live performance of Luci de Lamamore by Donizetti.
on Opera Box Score. Oh, man, do I love that, Aria. What a great choice. So uh, my good call for this week, uh, Chicago Fringe Opera is putting on that transgender-themed opera, transgender is having a moment right now, called As One, uh, with a libretto by Mark Campbell and the composer is Kaminsky. Um, anyway, that's a really great thing for Chicago to have, and they are doing a preview event this Friday, September 29th, at Hydrate, which is a bar where you take off your shirt. Perfect to raise money for as one. Check out ChicagoFringeOpera.com. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Do us a favor by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guests, Craig Trumpeter, Kimberly McCord, and Sally Jackson, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while taking a knee and linking arms with your teammates. We're back next Monday at 9 p.m. Central for the beginning of Season 3 of the OBS More jingles, more interviews, more hot takes, and a new co-host joins the show. Join us. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.